You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore dada. Well, the, uh, we did get a little bit of breaking news. The Vikings and three-time Pro Bowl pass rusher Daniil Hunter agreed to terms on a new one-year deal worth $20 million. Sources tell me and Rap Sheet, this is via Tom Pelissero. Hunter gets $17 million guaranteed and a no-tag clause with a chance to earn a big payday next March. So, what I want to do for the most part today, maybe in its entirety, I know all the hype is about training camp and talk about training camp and talk about the future and like how many wins are we going to get and blah, blah, blah. We've been doing that for months. We can speculate and speculate and speculate and speculate, but um, we will get back to that tomorrow when we do more training camp stuff. Today's no training camp, so I want to kind of pull back in and I want to do something that we've kind of been doing especially with this running back stuff but I guess it's just a big picture view of how the NFL works just getting a better understanding of the NFL and so the question is when you look at this I think most people just look at it and come to very broad sweeping conclusions right um see I knew it was always going to get done or that's a lot of money or that's not a lot of money or whatever the case may be but I guess for me, I want to look at it from the team standpoint, from the player standpoint, and say, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I tend to feel like, just as far as a first gut reaction, to some degree, this is a compromise for both sides. The Vikings are in a weird spot. I, I mentioned this, I think, yesterday. They're in a weird spot because, again, when you when you try to figure out the future, who are the building blocks? In my mind, Daniil Hunter is one of the building blocks. The Vikings are playing this as though they don't agree. And I don't know that I fully understand that. I would have to assume, from my perspective, Daniil Hunter wants a big payday, and he wants a long-term contract. That's what, that's what everybody wants. I want a three-year, four-year, five-year. I mean, most of the, the longer it goes, the more fake it gets, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But I, I want a bigger commitment over a longer period of time as a premier pass rusher that I think that I am. And I think from the Vikings' standpoint... You are one of the very few core pieces we actually have on this team. We got Justin Jefferson, we got a couple offensive linemen, and we got Daniil Hunter. And I really don't know if there's a single thing else that you look at and go, this is the future. 
this is the core of this team that's going to take it somewhere. It ain't Kirk Cousins. I mean, you could say Jordan Addison if you want, but the guy hasn't taken a single snap. He could be completely terrible. I think Vikings fans especially should look at some of their past first-round picks and not get too excited. Justin Jefferson aside, I mean, just look at the first and second-round pick cornerbacks that you've had over the last five, six, seven years, however many years. They're awful. So no, there's no rookie that is a cornerstone piece. Cornerstone piece is a young, talented, established player that you can build around. If Daniil Hunter is not one, and the Vikings seem to not think that he is, I have to assume that, and I can't imagine they're so stupid as to think, well, we're changing schemes and he doesn't fit, because that's just unbelievable, that rather than building around him, you build away from him and say he doesn't fit anymore. The only other thing is the injuries, to say, I don't know that I trust you to stay healthy. But the $20 million deal tends to work out better for Daniil than it does, I think, for the team. It doesn't serve really any purpose for the Minnesota Vikings, because when you look at a, I mean, 20 million is a decent chunk of change. The only reason I could see doing this is we know Daniil is not the future. I mean, th- when it would make sense to pay a pass rusher or, or whatever this much money just for one year. He's not the future, but we want him to come in and help us win a Super Bowl ring this year. The Vikings are not really competing for a Super Bowl ring. I mean, all 32 teams are, and yes, there's outside chances for everything else, but this is not, hey, let's push all the chips into the middle territory. Like, we want to get rid of this guy, but before we do, let's do one final push. That's silly. I mean, maybe that is what they're doing. They're like, hey, we're going to get rid of Kirk pretty soon, and things could really fall off, so we might as well do one more year, but that that still doesn't fully make sense because Daniil's still relatively young. So the only thing that I can really think that probably happened is Daniil says, I should be one of those premier $28, $30 million pass rush guys. The Vikings say, no, you're not worth that. Daniil probably came to find out that the market agreed with the Vikings. And so again, there was a compromise. And the compromise was, look, let us give you $20 million. It's almost fully guaranteed. $17 million of that is, is, is guaranteed. And they put a no tag clause on it, which really falls into place of what I'm saying, which is we're going to make an agreement. And the agreement is if you can demonstrate to us that you can dominate, we'll pay you. And if we don't pay you adequately, then you will have earned, one way or another, you will, you will get an opportunity this year to prove that you're the guy. And the no tag clause just means if you're either going to pay me or I'm going to go find money somewhere else and you're not going to play this tag BS. Well, we're going to franchise tag you. No, you're not. And the Vikings committed to that. So there will be no tag and trade and all that stuff. Maybe it's because they're, they're genuinely saying, hey, if you, if you can go out and prove it and earn it, we will pay you. Or maybe it's just because they know that this is a one-year deal and they don't want to keep him and he's going to move on. I don't really know. But that seems to be what the conclusion was, which if that is true, what that tends to mean to me is, again, the rest of the NFL agreed with the, Vi- agreed with the Vikings. He is not deserving of a massive contract. Maybe somebody else would have offered him a little more. But the point is, he, he isn't at the top of the market where he wants to be. He's betting on himself. He's going to take the $20 million, which is a lot of money. 17 I don't know the extra three, how much. It doesn't matter how much of that is basically guaranteed compared to impossible to get. But it's, it's a prove-it thing. And obviously, I, I wish no ill will toward Daniil. He's an absolute beast. But as a Packer fan, what I don't want is for him to prove it and then get paid by the Vikings and stay with the Vikings. I want him to go bye-bye. Yes, the cap will be worse if they have to pay. I, I get all that, but it doesn't matter. Teams who are low on cap space because they're paying a ton of superstars is less ideal when you're looking at one of our our rivals than the alternative, which is they have a ton of money because none of their players are any good. Because the bottom line is you're not going to stitch together a team with a bunch of free agents and free... Look what the Bears did with $110 million. Nothing. They did nothing. 
two linebackers and a running back and a backup quarterback and a guard. Wow. Oh, and Robert Tunyon. Don't forget Robert Tunyon. That's a big one. Just crushed free agency. So anyways, that was the big news of the day. I want to look at something. Um, a lot of this is pretty well established as it is, but some people are not on board. And even for those that are, like myself, um, it's still interesting. Obviously, there are still some lingering people out there who love to say things like the cap isn't real. Obviously, obviously, this is nonsense. Without launching into a whole thing about it, find me one team that has exceeded the salary cap. If the cap isn't real, find me one team that has exceeded the salary cap. Ever. If you can't find it, then shut up. But I, I see uh, this article here that I think helps to bridge the gap a little bit between the people that understand math and um, the cap isn't real people. And it's this, the cap is real, but contracts are fake. And so in, in the big picture, what that means is everybody overreacts to contracts, as I said. Somebody will see a team and they've got like $8 million left and they go out and sign somebody to a $40 million per year contract, and they're like, oh, look at that. Cap's fake. No, the contract is. The big numbers that you're seeing. The problem is, you don't believe the cap, which is ridiculous, because it's a real thing. But you do believe the big social media headlines. He was signed to a 10-year, $400 million contract, 40 million average per year. My goodness. In the small print, it says 17 million guaranteed, you know. <laughs> so the problem isn't the cap. The cap is a hard cap, right? There's, there's a couple little nuanced things in terms of carryover money or whatever, but the point is there is a cap and you cannot exceed it. But there is some complexity to the contract. And, and along with that complexity is the fact that the optics are on the high side of what the contract could be, but for the most part, the big number that you're seeing, there's almost a 0% chance that that number is ever reached in most cases, right? If you get a one-year deal like the Daniil Hunter thing, there's a lot less flexibility to be able to do things with contracts, which means it's going to be closer to the real number. And then when you add in guarantees, if it's a $20 million fully guaranteed, well then guess what? There's no flexibility, and so the number is real. In this case, it's $17 million, so it's almost 100% um, as it seems. It's just a question of the $3 million, how much of that is, is going to be hit or not. It doesn't, again, it doesn't super matter because it's so close. Let me read a little bit of this here. It says, so why are teams able to seemingly make any moves they want in the offseason, no matter the prior state of the cap spending, as long as uh, they have the will to do so? It's because the contracts are fake. This isn't a plea to make all NFL contracts guaranteed though that would give clearer optics as to how short the and cheap actual contracts are, I just want people to understand that NFL contract lengths are mostly at the discretion of franchises, essentially stacking many more de facto team option years than those where, uh, where players are guaranteed to be on the roster. So again, this isn't even about, well, it should change. No, no, it doesn't need to change. You just need to understand what's happening here. We don't need to change every single thing because basic minor complexities are too hard for you to comprehend. Yes, if they were fully guaranteed contracts, you would see Tom Pelissero say, here's how much they got, and that's how much they would get, and then you would get a clearer picture. But that's not how it works, and you just need to understand that the number that you're seeing flashed in front of your eyes is not real, which, which also is why we should not just run out and go, oh, dang, he got this, that, or the other. It's why when the Rodgers thing happened, 
both times, it's like, let's just wait. Let's just see. I, I don't know. Until the official numbers come out, let's just wait and see. Because there's the optics when they first come out, and then there's what actually happened. And until the numbers guys actually see the numbers and put their hands on it and then break it down in a way that is understandable, even to a person like me, I'm not interested in, in overreacting. I'll give my perspective based on the news as we know it, with a caveat that this may change. But I want to draw your attention to this little chart they put together, which I think really illustrates things. Over the Cap has five categories for contracts. He puts contracts into five buckets. Terminated, pay cut, expired, pay raise, and extension. Terminated is the team cut the player before the contract expired. Pay cut is when the average per year, um, they, the player renegotiates a contract, the team and player renegotiate a contract where the average per year is lower than it was originally. Expired means they both just let it run out. Pay raise, the team and player renegotiate to an average per year that was higher than the average per year of the original contract. And extension, uh, the existing contract was deemed to be extended in Over the Caps database. But here's the point. 50.7%, so, so, well, let's, before we even get into that, there's, there's five categories. The first two, terminated and pay cut, are negatives for the player. Expired is deemed to be neutral. Pay raise and extension are positive for the player. 50.7% are terminated, which means the contract is ended before the contract expires. More than 50% don't make it through the rest of the contract. So when you see that, there is a 50-50 chance that it's not even going to get to the end of the contract. And then an additional 11.6% end up getting a pay cut. So over 62% of players either get terminated or end up taking a pay cut. By the way, one-year contracts are not included in this. This is they, they have it broke down in two years, three years, four years, or five plus. 29.1% are allowed to expire, which is neutral. It means we reach the conclusion of the contract. Now, even in that scenario, you're unlikely to have gotten 100% of that total amount of money. Well, the only thing we know is that you got 100% of the total guarantees, which is why most people look at it and say, all I care about is the guarantees. Because that's what's deemed to be, you know, I know you're getting that. But, but in reality, 11.6% end up taking a pay cut. Just 5.5% end up getting a pay raise, and 3.2% get an extension. So when you see these contracts, just understand, only 8.7% are going to end up getting more money than this. 29.1% will reach the conclusion of this, getting all of the guaranteed money and then whatever other extras they were able to get on top of it. Just 29% and 62.3% will either have the contract terminated before it finishes or will end up taking a pay cut. And the reason it's so heavily skewed toward the negative is obvious. It's because the contract was fake to begin with. There was never any intention of giving them that much money. That all of that extra on the side of negative as opposed to positive, or or even negative on the on the on the as opposed to expired, which is just we get to the conclusion of this thing, is the optics. It's the optics that are being cut out. And teams also understand that there is flexibility in the event of potentially uh, uh, demanding a player take a pay cut. And if you don't, what happens? What I mean, let's be honest. What would have happened to Aaron Jones if he didn't take a pay cut? I don't think he'd be on the team. Even for two-year contracts, less than half end up being fully paid out. Two-year contracts! We can't even make it to two years! It's like 50.2% are either terminated or end up taking a pay cut on just a two-year deal. And of course, the longer the contract, the, the worse it gets. 51.1% of five-plus-year contracts are terminated. Which, what's interesting is the terminated actually goes up 
for so it's it's 44.7 for two years it's 54.2 for three years it's 58.4 for four years five plus it actually goes down significantly to 51.1 you know why because there's such a massive jump in pay cuts if you have a five plus year contract there's a significantly higher chance you're going to be taking a pay cut why well because you've got this long-term contract you want the long-term contract, and you understand that you are no longer anywhere near your value, right? The, the amount of money that they promised you is not the value that you're owed. And you could say, well, why don't you just say, so what? You got to pay up because the, the guarantees are gone, or at least have largely dried up to the point where the team can cut you, take on the dead cap it, and then you're going to sit out there and flounder. Nobody's going to pay you. So you're going to make less money if you don't take a pay cut. Because if you take a pay cut, we're just going to slap some guaranteed money in your pocket and basically guarantee you probably this year and next year, and then we'll renegotiate from there. But you get some an infusion of cash in your pocket and two more guaranteed years, whereas right now you have zero guaranteed years. We can cut you today. So when you get to a five-plus year contract, expect at some point that your value will go well below the line at which the team is paying, and they're not going to pay it. But five-plus year contracts, 51.1% are terminated, 21.3 compared to just 14.3 with four years. 21.3 take a pay cut. Just 12.4% make it to the end. The other interesting thing is there's a significantly higher amount of pay raise and extended for the five-plus year. The only thing I could think is, well, number one, there's a lot of quarterbacks in that group because I don't think a lot of other groups get those big account, you know, that those long contracts outside of quarterbacks. But also the, the ones that are not quarterbacks are mega superstars they're kind of in a separate category and there's actually a dark black band there i don't know if that's just uh, for any kind of reason or whatever but that that would be my thought on why that's such a unique category for my estimation four-year contracts are probably the worst 58.4 percent are terminated 14.3 percent are, are pay cut just 18.3 percent end up expiring 4.8 percent get a pay raise 4.2 percent are extended um all right i want to pivot again to running back just because there's some more details that I find to be somewhat interesting. Um, Bill Barnwell wrote sort of the definitive article on this, at least from the side of, you know, actually trying to understand things as opposed to just flailing around emotionally. Wrote it uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. But um, he mentioned a, a bunch of points on this as far as why the running back has been devalued, most of which we've already covered. But one of them that I found interesting was the uh, slotted draft system. 2011 CBA instituted a slotted draft system, which is instead of negotiating contracts, just kind of whatever, we now have this pick costs this much money, period. There's no debate. There's no discussion. That's how much it costs. And what it did is it drove the price way down. So there's no big mega contracts. All right, it talks about the final number one pick under the old system was Sam Bradford, who took home $50 million in guaranteed money on the rookie deal. The largest running back contract for a rookie was Reggie Bush's six-year, $62 million um, contract as the number two pick in 2007. And you might think, well, why would that hurt running backs that now that now that these picks are significantly cheaper? And the answer is because it's a question of all things being equal, right? Of course, you would rather take a running back even at the number two pick for way less money than what Reggie Bush got in 2007. But why would you take a running back for that amount of money when you can get a quarterback for that amount of money? Why would you take a running back and pay him wide receiver money when you can get a quarterback and pay him wide receiver money? Even later on when the when the contract's sort of, you know, like B. John Robinson is, is kind of like top of the, he's one of the top running backs right now. So it, it fits in terms of like it's a good price. But again, 
You can get quarterbacks, wide receivers, tackles, and pass rushers, guys that are all cracking 30 million APY right now, for these really low prices. So all things being equal is going to push running backs even further out of that discussion. So in a weird way, if we got rid of the slotted draft system and made contracts go through the roof, it would actually help running backs. And they would make more money because their rookie contracts would probably be higher depending on when they get drafted. Because you're not competing for, you know, a $10 million per year quarterback compared to a $10 million per year running back in this particular draft slot. It would be, do I want a running back that I'm going to pay $10 million, or do I want a quarterback that I'm going to pay, you know, $20 million, or what? I don't, I don't know what the contracts would be on a rookie deal, but... So, so that ended up helping teams, because it just drove the prices down, and massively hurting undervalued positions, because there's no reason, all things being equal, that you would pay a center or a guard or a tight end or a running back really, really high amounts of money if there are corners and wide receivers and edge rushers and tackles and quarterbacks and those higher values, if, if they're sitting there, that makes more sense. It's just maximizing value per dollar because you have a, a, a salary cap. So everybody only gets a certain amount of money. So how much value per dollar do you have is the only thing you can do to maximize your val- the value of your team. If, if all things were equal and everybody had the exact same value per dollar, every single team would be exactly the same. The only way you separate and make yourself a better team is to maximize your value per dollar. And you can do that at, at the highest rate in the draft because this is when the contracts are artificially low. This is your best chance to maximize value per dollar and make your team better than everybody else's. And if you go out and pay a running back more than running backs are worth with your rookie pick, like the, the Lions decided to do, again, he might be a great player, but you're just, you're just wasting. Even if he pans out, all you're doing is breaking even. You missed an opportunity. The, the word is opportunity cost. I think another thing that's worth mentioning, and um, it, kind, it, it, it almost in my mind went without saying, but I, I think it does need saying, one of the sections in his article says, but why are there four solid backs in the prime of their career still left in free agency in mid-July? I think part of the issue is there's so many big names not getting big contracts. And the very obvious problem is these are really not very good running backs. I've been telling you for years Dalvin Cook is not as good as people are making him out to be. People love him because of his fantasy value, and his fantasy value is high because he gets a billion carries. He gets more carries than anybody else. But on a per-carry basis, he's not that great. And last year was an absolute disaster. So last year he had a bad year, which is going to scare the crap out of everybody who looks at running backs and say when they hit, it, when they hit that cliff, they're gone. He hit a cliff last year, which might have had to do with the, the new offensive scheme. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. On top of that, the guy's had a billion injuries. He goes on to talk about Kareem Hunt, averaged 3.8 yards per carry last season, was a situational back in Cleveland, and is a no-go for some organizations after he shoved and kicked a woman in 2018. Ezekiel Elliott's efficiency as a runner has, and receiver has dropped each of the past three seasons, and he has played through injuries since 2021 in Dallas. Leonard Fournette arguably was the league's least productive starting back in Tampa Bay a year ago. They're big names, but they're not that good. In terms of total value, they're, they're, just, they're just another rotational back, just like that guy you got in the fourth round two years ago, who's not great, but he serves a purpose. Except one of them is a fourth-round back just trying to make a name for himself, isn't begging for money. The other one's like, why am I not getting a bunch of money? Dude, just go away, okay? <laughs> Seriously. I think the other thing that I was thinking about today is, I think even I get kind of hung up in hyperbole, and some people take might take that as literal. And sometimes even in my mind, I somewhat take it literally as opposed to, to actually thinking through, okay, let's let's leave the hyperbole aside and get into the, the details. And one of those things is, 
don't pay running backs. Well, obviously that's stupid. You need running backs, and, and if they're going to be in there, you, you have to pay them. Right, so there's a question of Aaron Jones. Should we have paid Aaron Jones? Well, you know, if we just go by the quote-unquote data, which is probably a misrepresentation of the data, the answer is always no because you never pay running backs. But I don't know that that's exactly what the data says. The data is going to put a particular value on a running back. Now, maybe the, the value for Aaron Jones was too high in terms of what we paid him. But I think the more important thing is, what is a good price for a running back? So... Aaron Jones might be on the high side of what the market is, but the market is low. So yeah, you don't pay Aaron Jones $22 million a year, right? That seems to be the confusion. But we didn't. And with an already relatively low contract, the guy took a pay cut. Because the Packers said, look, you're, you're, we're paying you a little bit more money than what we feel that you're worth, and so we're not going to continue paying this. So unless you're willing to take a pay cut, we're going to have to let you go. And he said, okay, I'll take a pay cut. And even by Aaron Jones' own admission, if you look at the market at large, I'm doing pretty well. Again, maybe he's still overpaid. I don't have an answer to this question. It sounds like some people are still trying to sort this out. I know there is a, where is the article here? There is a, another article here. Uh, beep, boop, beep, beep, beep. What is the title of this stupid thing? Uh, running back discussion off the rails. But uh, at one point in here, he just says, For deals moving forward, the ceiling should probably be $14 million APY and $25 million in guarantees based on the production expected over the next several years. Now, what does that mean for Aaron Jones in particular? I don't know. But, but again, I don't want to get so caught up in this, like running backs have no value, which again is hyperbole. Of course they have value. And I need to stop using so much hyperbole because people take it literally and then they call into Packernet After Dark and trash me. And I can't really defend what I said because I technically did literally say those words. But I'm, I'm really just trying to hammer a particular point very, very hard because I think we're way too far in the other direction. Even I am too far in the other direction. And then to some degree, I'm trying to hammer myself into understanding this conceptually because we do have a hard time understanding why a person that carries the ball and gets the touchdowns and and is in mvp conversations unlike guards and other people that get paid that much how in the world could they be, be not more valuable right but again we've already talked about it. i'm not going to go through the entire list but again i, I just want to kind of single in on that one point moving forward running backs have value it's just a questioning of trying to find the right value because the nfl has been overvaluing running backs for a long time and maybe we've gotten to a point where it's dipped too low and it needs to come back up a little bit. I'm not entirely sure. There are other factors uh, in place right now, such as, I mean, how many true premier running backs are there right now? There's not a ton. And the success rate for first-round rookies has been pretty abysmal, whereas in the past it was higher. And maybe if there was a better track record and we had a bunch of really elite players, especially first-round picks, maybe that would drive the price up a little bit. And so maybe it's slightly lower, not necessarily based on purely on running back talent, but based on the current running back talent. You know, we don't, we don't really have an Adrian Peterson in the league right now. We've got some great runners, but we don't have that guy that's just, just killing everybody. That just terrifies you. I don't think he exists right now. Maybe it's B. John Robinson. Maybe it's Jameer Gibbs. I don't know. But again, I, I just wanted to make that point so that I, I don't, because I'm going to continue just hammering this point, but just understand that, that. As, as off the rails as I may go in one direction, please keep in mind that I'm saying that there is a value. We just need to find out what that value is. And yes, you should pay running backs, even second contracts. The question, though, is how much? And, and the reality is generally why you don't pay running backs, at least in the past, is because teams were overpaying running backs 
And so in order to be able to get these running backs to stay, you have to pay them way more than they're worth. But now with the contracts seemingly coming down, you got to remember, there were guys in terms of like $20, they're making $25 million a year, right? So I think that we need to keep the conversation open in terms of should you pay running backs? Because as the price continues to come down, I mean, you should always pay players what they're worth. And if the the market is out of control, then the answer is no. But as the market continues to dip, at some point you say yes. And so even with Aaron Jones, you look at it and say, what, what's he at, $12 million? I don't know exactly how it shakes out with the original contract minus what he took as a pay cut or whatever, but I think it's somewhere around $12, 13000000 million. I know we, we owe him eight point two this year as far as the cap, seventeen point seven next year, and we'll see if we end up paying them that. I don't know. But yeah, but you take those two, add it up, divide by two, it's at little under $13 million, 12.957. Is that too high? Maybe, I don't know. What what about the discussion that we're not paying any wide receivers? Is there a discussion to be had about that? Maybe not, because value is value. But are you really benefiting if you move on from Aaron Jones to collect more money and do what with it? We're not going to go out and get wide receivers. We're not going to, we can't go out and get a running back. That makes no sense. Are we going to overpay tight ends or overpay a wide receiver? What are we going to do with the money? I mean, yeah, at some point we're going to have to pay Watson and all these guys, but not as long as Aaron Jones is here. Anyways, let's take a quick break here, uh, come back and talk about a couple other little points. Because again, as I've mentioned some points about the running back thing, I've heard some counterpoints, things that make sense, but we need, I mean, again, it just continues to get worse. Almost every little crack, every little loophole about what about, what about, what about, eh, it doesn't hold up. But please check out grassfedcooperative.com, use promo code PACKER10. That's capital P, Packer 10. Get 10% off your order of a massive box of steaks, ground beef, whatever it is you're looking for. They'll package it up selectively, deliver it with free shipping. If you want to support the podcast, patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy is where you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Or hit me up on Venmo, Packernet Podcast. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. So one of the things that has been talked about is what about receiving? Because it's not fair to say that running is not the most valuable thing. Therefore, running backs are not valued because running backs can be receivers too. What about receiving back? So you're adding value as a runner and as a receiver, guys like Alvin Kamara, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Article, August 16th, 2019 by Michael Salfino. Sorry, running backs. Even your receiving value can be easily replaced. Remember, this is from a few years ago, so some of this is going to sound dated, but I'm just going to start with the second paragraph here. It says, But top backs like Le'Veon Bell, who sat out the entire year 2018 season over a contract dispute with the Steelers, and current holdout Ezekiel Elliott, who hauled in 77 passes last year, may be hoping to reestablish value at the position with their receiving ability. By leaning into a more pass-happy league, running backs like these two, the Panthers' Christian McCaffrey and the number 2 overall pick in the 2018 NFL Draft, the New York Giants' Saquon Barkley, are leading a receiving revolution at the position. But despite the exploits of the most prolific receiving backs last year, running back targets as a share of all passes are not significantly increasing. Teams are just throwing to everyone more often. So we're starting to see this, this surge in running backs as receivers. Right, whereas it didn't happen as much any in the past, but that's mostly because the passing overall is going up. So yes, running backs are getting more receptions. So are wide receivers and tight ends. Last year, twenty point two percent of passes were targeted at running backs, which is in line with the two thousand one to two thousand seventeen average of nineteen point five percent. The same is true if we look at the market share of passing yards, eighteen percent last year compared to seventeen point five percent from two thousand one to two thousand twenty seventeen. And unless you're playing fantasy football, judging receiving ability by the number of catches and receiving yards is a poor way to measure skill. Been trying to tell people that since forever. Fantasy football has rotted people's brains from the inside out. A check down to a running back who gains 12 yards on 3rd and 15 is great for your fantasy team, but it doesn't do much to improve an actual team's chances of winning a game. A more accurate, but still imperfect, gauge of the receiving value of a running back is the added value of the player in which he is a receiver. We can use the team's success rate on those plays, whether the play resulted in positive expected points added, to see more clearly that not all running back catches and yards are created equal. Last year, NFL backs registered successful plays on 1,663 of 3,572 receiving targets at a rate of 46.6%, according to ESPN Stats and Information Group. So in other words, if you throw at a running back, the play was deemed successful 46.6% of the time. Elliott and Barkley were the top two rushers in the league that season, but were below average receivers for the position by this metric, posting respectable, uh, respective success rates of 36.1 and 40.3% on passes thrown to them, which is also important. Again, we, we focus way too much on volume. You look at it and say, well, guys like Barkley and guys like Elliott are great backs, and they're also really valuable in the receiving game. No, they're not. On average, 46.6% of the time when you throw at a running back, the play is successful. Just 36 and 40% 
for those two, meaning they were less successful than league average passes to other running backs. But you don't care about those other running backs because they only get targeted a handful of times, whereas Ezekiel Elliott at the time got a bunch of receptions and a bunch of yards off those receptions and a bunch of fantasy points, right? The Cowboys and Giants ranked 31st and 26th respectively in overall success rates on those plays. When their quarterbacks threw to Elliott and Barkley, they typically weren't increasing their probability of scoring points. They were worsening it. Whether it's scheme, blocking, or the ability of the running backs themselves, some teams are just better at this play call than others. And then he's got a chart here showing, you know, the the success rates from high to low. Kansas City, never really known as a team very good at uh, getting elite running back, was the highest. Dallas, with Ezekiel Elliott, the star of the time, was the second lowest. The Chiefs also don't throw to their running backs very much. Maybe because it's not just about volume, it's about efficiency. They throw to their running backs at the right times. And so the, the bottom line is, you can say, well, if you get them more involved in the passing game, then they become more value, but the prob- the, the valuable. But the problem is, you're still facing data that says you have a lower chance of success on a play throwing to a running back than you do throwing to one of your wide receivers. So in other words, if we want to pass, why would we pass to you? Again, sometimes you do, whatever. Obviously, there are times when it's successful. I, I, I can already hear, well, I remember that one time Aaron Jones, da, da, da. no kidding. Even on the low end of the spectrum, Arizona, 34.9%, 35%. That's still 38 successful plays. So having a memory of good things happening is entirely useless, and that's what I'm trying to get people to stop doing. Yeah, but I remember this one great play, and I remember the Dude, that has nothing to do with anything. The Patriots had 86 successful plays. That was the highest. That's a, that's a crap ton of successful plays. Just throwing to running backs, not even running back plays. There's only 16 games at this time. And they had 86 successful passes to running backs. That's a ton. But the success rate was just 50.6%. That was out of 170 attempts. So yeah, it, it may be more beneficial if you're a receiving back because your receiving ability is more valuable than your running ability. But you're never going to get all the way up to where you want to be because you as a receiver is not as good as a receiver as a receiver. I mean, the, the point is there are just these hard limits that are put on things that you just are really not going to be able to get beyond. Now, maybe if you are, again, Bijan Robinson apparently could, could be a wide receiver. Maybe you can just slot him out and let him run routes and you'll see an explosion of value in that individual player. But the point is, you're not being valuable as a running back. You're being valuable as a receiver. Your value only increases when you become a new position. So again, nothing really changes. There's, we always want to like finagle this to make it a certain, well, if we, if we you know, squint our eyes and tilt our head a little bit, maybe running backs can get more this way or that. There, there isn't. There isn't a thing. Final article here. This was also sent to me by Mr. Numberman. Rushing success and play action, right? This is a big one. Well, well, you have to run the ball to set up play action. You gotta, I'll just read it because they'll lay it out for you. This is also a great article in regards to why I'm skeptical of the whole appeal to authority thing, which is anytime, well, this football player said this, and because he's a football player, you have to shut your mouth because football players know everything. No, they don't. This is a column uh, uh, by Ben Baldwin over at Football Outsiders. Why do teams run the ball so often? The average pass play gained 6.2 yards in 2017 compared to 4.1 yards on the average rushing play. And yet, on first and 10... uh, Teams ran the ball 53% of the time. On these first and 10 runs, 44% of rushes and 52% of passes were successful. Again, looking at success rate. 
You're better off passing on first down than second down, yet, at least at the time, most teams ran on first down. They did the less optimal thing. Why would you do that? A common response to the question of why teams run so frequently is that teams need to run the ball in order to maintain an effect, uh, effectiveness of play-action passing. When play action is based on a uh, committed rushing attack, the argument goes the pass rush has to slow down and the linebackers have to respect the threat of run of the run, pulling them toward the line of scrimmage and away from the coverage responsibilities. Examples of this argument abound. The Ringers, Robert Mays, recently wrote that, quote, As much as our understanding of the sport has shifted in recent years, the belief that a play-action game's effectiveness is linked to a strong, high-usage run game uh, running offense has remained steadfast. Former NFL offensive lineman Jeff Schwartz stated that teams have to commit to running the ball first to open up play-action, end quote. Again, he would know. He's an offensive lineman. Shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. Let's continue. Despite the pervasiveness of this argument, I have not seen much evidence about the extent to which the effectiveness of play-action passing is dependent on a team's rushing attack. With thanks to play-by-play charting from ESPN Stats and Information and Sports Info Solutions, this piece takes a deep dive into the measuring of empirical relationships between rushing and play-action passing. And so very simply, they, they put together three different plots. The question is, if you run more or run more successfully, does that help your play-action passing? And so very simply, you can chart this. And, and, and these charts work, they're, they're very intuitive. If you see a line going from the bottom left to the top right, that's called a correlation. And then we can kind of see how closely related these things are. So we have total rushes, percentage rush, so rush percentage, what percentage of the time do you run the ball, and rushing success rate. And then on the y-axis, you have play-action yards per play. So as you run the ball more, does your play-action yards per play increase? Do you get better at play-action passing? Is there a line going straight up or, or up and to the right? The answer is very obviously no. It is, it is literally just a pile of dots. For those of you that understand statistics, I really, I, I like statistics. I'm not super great at it. They, they give what is called the R2, and it's what percentage of this is explained by that. It's correlation. And essentially, if there was a one-to-one correlation, it would be 100. It, it would be one, is what it would be, right? One would be 100% correlation, or 100% of this is explained by that. 100% of our play-action yards per play is explained in totality by total rushes, you get rush percent, rush whatever. For total rushes, it is 2%. Rush percent, it's 1%. And for rush success rate, it's 3%. In other words, almost zero. There is basically no correlation between how often you run in terms of totality or as a percentage or how successful you are at running. There is almost no correlation whatsoever. And again, you think about it, so, well, it's intuitive, obviously, it must be. But what I'm telling you is, this is every single point of data. There is no correlation. It's not here. It would be here if it was a thing. It's not a thing. Here's how he s- explains it in, in more intelligent terms. He says, in each figure, the R, R squared, R2, whatever, is printed in the lower right. In the upper left figure, for example, the R2 of 0.02 means that 2% of the variation in the team's play-action effectiveness, as measured by yards per play-action per dropback, in a given season can be explained by the number of rushes in that season. Which is to say 98% of the variation has to do with something else. So committing yourself to being a team that runs the ball a lot because it will impact positively Our play-action game by 2% is stupid. Saying that we are going to be a run-first team 
because we want to kill you with play action is dumb. Because the difference between the team that runs the most and the team that runs the least in terms of their play action efficiency, at least as far as it relates to the rushing attempts, there is no difference. He goes through a bunch of other things. He says, because a team's season-long numbers can be influenced by game script, for example, a team might compile a bunch of rush attempts while salting a game away when play action is no longer relevant, I also checked to see whether there was any relationship between play action effectiveness and these three rushing measures, total rushes, rush to uh, uh, ratio of rushes, or rushing success rate. Four plays that occurred while a game was within seven points. The results were similar. So even when you start to filter some things out where, you know, you could say the second quarter and third quarter or first through third within this time period. What I, the, the point is, nothing changes this. Goes on to say the results above suggest that a team's rushing frequency and effectiveness in a season do not predict how successful that team was at play action passing. In other words, you cannot tell a person how good their play action is based on how much they run or how successful they are at running. If you try to go back and, and use only those data points, to determine how good that team was at play action, you won't be able to do it. And you should if one affects the other. So anyways, from there he goes on and creates a billion different charts. And it's it's all interesting. It mostly doesn't have anything to do with play action. It's kind of just setting the stage for a lot of things. Um, for example, how likely are you to pass based on what you've done in the past? Likelihood of passing giving, given showing handoff. So for example, if in the last five plays you haven't run once, it's less likely that if you are showing handoff that you're going to run play action, probably because you're just running a lot and you're more likely to run. But as that increases all the way up to two or three times, you end up being more likely to end up passing, and then it just drops off from there. So again, it doesn't necessarily correlate to anything in terms of, of success. Just kind of gives some data and background into the likelihood that you're going to use play action based on how many times in the last five plays or ten plays you either ran or ran successfully. But then one of the things it talks about is pressure rate. It says, the next outcome measured is pressure rate on play-action dropbacks. As described above, one of the arguments for rushing effective, uh, rushing affecting play-action passing is that if the defense has to respect the run, then it will affect their pass rush on play-action dropbacks. However, there does not appear to be any support for this hypothesis, as pressure rate is mostly constant regardless of previous rushing, hovering in the range of 27 to 29%. Note that for pressure rate alone, I exclude 2017 because I do not have data from that year. So in other words, the hypothesis is if you keep running, they're going to have to back off. Yet that doesn't seem to be the case. Just looking at one of these charts here, it shows pressure rate on the y-axis, x-axis is how many times have you run in the last five plays. And interestingly enough, it does slightly go up the more you run. It starts, if you've run zero times in the last five plays, in other words, last five plays have been five passes, it's below um, 28%. Call it 27 point, or yeah, 27.8 or something, I don't know. But then it goes up above 28% with one run, two runs, and then kind of goes back after three. It, it, it kind of goes up and flat lines. And then if you've run four times in the last five plays, it spikes and then flat lines again at four or five. So it, it, it almost is counterintuitive, at least in this one category. But for the most part, it's almost identical. I mean, we're talking right at about 28%. But then if you look at rush, rush success, it does seem to go down a little bit, although again, staying mostly the same. It's at just above 28% if you have zero successful rushes in the last five attempts, just below 28% if you've run four times in the last five. 
Then he looks at depth of target. Is there a change in depth of target based on how many times you've run or how successfully you've run? And the answer to that question is no. It's, it's like a flat line again. The mean and median depth of target is mostly constant regardless of team's previous rushing statistics. And then the final one, it says, and finally, yards per play on play action drop back. Looking at these same metrics, rushes in the last five plays. How many times have you run in the last five plays? How many times have you run uh, successfully in the last five plays? Runs in the last 10 plays, successful runs in the last 10 plays, rushing percentage, and rushing success rate. And again, these are perfectly flat lines. There is absolutely no correlation. How many times you've run, because again, the, the idea here is, okay, that the, the first thing we looked at was over the course of a season. If you're a heavy rushing team compared to a you know heavy passing team, does that impact how successful you are in play action? The answer was no. But what about in the game itself? If you commit to to it in a game, and not even just in a game, let's look at recent history. In the last five plays, if you run the ball four times and then pass, is that going to positively affect your ability to be successful in play-action passing? And again, with all this data, the answer seems to be no. He says, this is the main relationship of interest. Regardless of which of the six measures of rushing one chooses, there is no meaningful relationship between the effectiveness of play-action passing and a team's rushing statistics in the game up to that point. Aside from a couple extreme extreme cases with very small sample sizes, zero rushes or eight rushes in the previous 10 plays, there is no relationship in the data between the median, mean, or 75th percentile of yards gained and a team's previous rushing attempt. This is consistent with the scatter plot of team rushing versus team play action for entire seasons that were displayed in the beginning of the article. He says, here's the data in the lower middle figure in the table, fo- so in table form. And they have rushes in the previous five plays. It goes one, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. How many times that happened? And then yards per play, it went from 6.9 at 0. Again, the, the outsides are the extremes. And then at 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5, it was 7.5, 7.5, 7.5, 7.4. And then rushes in the past five plays being 5, it dropped to 6.4. Then using standard deviation, looking at between 1 and 4, it was 11.6, 11.7, 11.5, 11.6. So being a run-heavy team, whether that means doing it a lot or doing it successfully, is not going to positively impact your ability to be a play-action passing team. Even in-game, setting up the play-action is a very common concept in the NFL, even among NFL players, even among NFL coaches, because it's a concept that makes sense intuitively. But as we go back and analyze it and say, okay, this is what is believed, but let's see to what extent this this actually happens, the answer is it doesn't. There's no data anywhere that says that by running the ball, running the ball a lot, running the ball successfully, that you're going to be a better play-action passing team. We say it because it's intuitive, but that doesn't matter. The fact that it makes sense to us and seems like it should be true, same as the running back conversation, it seems like they should get more money. So what? Who cares how it feels in our tummy? What is real? That's what matters. And you say, well, how could that be possible? Well, I don't know, but, but there could be a very simple explanation. Regardless of how much you run or how successfully you run, a play-action works because you're pretending to run and then you pass. And unless you've, I'm guessing if you never ran a football in your entire life, you're a team that only passes, we do not run, play action might not be effective. Probably wouldn't be effective, right? Like sometimes we we pass and sometimes we just have a guy line up in the backfield for some random reason. We pretend to hand it off to him, but we never give it to him. In that instance, I'm guessing you would see some statistical correlation between the high level of passing and the ineffectiveness of play action. 
But in reality, everybody runs. And on any given play, most of the time when you show run, and it says that in this article, most of the time when you show run, you're running. Even for teams that don't run very much, even for teams that don't run very successfully. Linebackers see that and they react to it. That would be my assumption. Or, or at least one potential explanation as to how these two things could be reconciled, which they don't even necessarily need to be reconciled, because it's entirely possible that people are just wrong. And there's no basis in the belief that you need to run in order for play action to work. But if we were to try to reconcile it, it isn't that hard. That's one possible reason. As long as you are a football team that does run the ball on occasion, somewhere around between 40 and 50%, like most teams do, and, are, and, and when you show handoff, you actually give the ball off like 75% of the time, it's going to impact, it, it's going to work because that's the point of the play is, is it's, it's a, in a sense like a trick play. And I gotcha. It even goes on to talk about, you know, we, we should at least question this. But it also says, why don't we run play action more when it seems obvious that play action is better than non-play action? And I think the, the answer is somewhat intuitive. Play action works because we don't do it most of the time. Because in a sense, it is kind of a trick play. But if it becomes the standard, if every time we ran a pass, it was play action, it would become less effective. It's my assumption. I don't know that. It's the fact that most of the time, when you turn around and hand the ball to the running back, you're actually handing it to the running back. The fact that when you don't do that in pass, it affects the defense in such a way that it makes it more successful, I think that has a, a, a high correlation to the fact that you, you just don't do it very often. We wouldn't know until teams actually started to shift it that maybe teams should lean more heavily on play action, especially if the rest of the league isn't. You might be able to get teams to bite because of you know their, their impulses from playing other teams and, and practicing it against your own team that usually hands the ball off. But again, a lot of this, what I'm trying to do is, again, understand football, but also just trying to stop thinking with our guts so much, with our impulses and our instincts, and based on how we feel, and based on what we've seen, and based on what fantasy says, and based on what... Rich Eisen and a bunch of guys who we assume are all-knowing authorities because they're former coaches or former players and they just know everything. Nobody knows everything, right? And, and you, you cannot learn if you're not willing to say, maybe I'm wrong. And you, you also can't learn if you're not willing to say, maybe that guy's wrong. And the, the fact of the matter is there's still a lot of things that the NFL does that it shouldn't do. Now, who are you to say? You're just some podcaster. They're the ones that know because I know human beings and I know human nature. And I know what infallibility is. And I know that it doesn't apply to a single human being. And I know what happens when you have a, a culture. And you, you like to do things the way that other people did things. There are things that are passed down from person to person to person. That includes the good habits as well as the bad habits. The NFL, the NFL continues to evolve on top of that. That in and of itself should tell you that it isn't perfect the way that it is. And our understandings are continuing... Um, to change. And the fact of the matter is, as much as people might say they don't like the analytic side of things and that it's ruining the game, the fact of the matter is, the more the data becomes prominent, the more teams seem to shift in that direction. And the ones that don't are the ones that get left behind. Again, if you don't agree with this, like, running back stuff, go ahead and pay running backs. See how far you get left behind. You think running's more important? Run, go pay a bunch of running backs, run the ball, treat it like it's the 1940s. Heck, you could be the Chicago Bears. Number one rushing team, number 32 passing team. How'd that work out? Oh yeah, number one pick in the NFL. Go ahead. Run the ball. Go crazy. Coaches and GMs and whatnot know a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of things that have been passed down to them that are great. But there's a lot of things that have been passed down to them that are kind of garbage. So don't ever get hung up on having to believe what anybody says. Go figure it out for yourself. Go look. Go read. Go study. 
You know, just just grab data. Go go look at it. Look into what you're saying. I mean, that's mostly what I do all the time. There's these battles on social media. What do I do? I run to PFF. I run to SIS, and I don't care if you don't like it. Oh, PFF, stupid. Okay, great. Go look at some of the articles they write and tell me they're stupid. See if you can even comprehend what they're saying, because most of them I can't. It's way over my head. I don't know who the people are reading this stuff, because it's like, unless you've got at least a bachelor's in statistics, I don't know how you can read this thing. But Football Outsiders, PFF, SIS, and there's a lot of other organizations out there, they, they are really doing a phenomenal job at giving us a, a much more in-depth understanding of what the heck is going on. What works, what doesn't, and why. And that goes from the draft to the plays, all of it. Ignore it at your own peril. But I, I, the, the other thing that I know is the more that you actually try to... I think in anything that you do, the more you try to immerse yourself in it, the more you realize you don't know anything. I remember when um, John Madden said that. I think I've told this story a thousand times, but I remember John Madden talking, and he was a young hotshot coach. And of course, he was brilliant. No question about it. He, he was and he knew it. He went to some seminar that Vince Lombardi was putting on. I want to say it was like an eight-hour thing. I might be exaggerating that, but it was, it, was, it was a really, 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 call it four hours. He spent two hours talking about the power sweep, and then they took a break, and then they came back, and he spent the last two hours talking about the power sweep. He spent the entire time talking about one play, and John Madden said he walked out of there and realized he doesn't know jack squat about being a coach. And I think that's true of anything. You start digging into... Um, the X's and O's. You feel like you've got a pretty good grasp of it, and the more, the deeper you dig, the more you realize, man, I don't know anything. And that's everybody. I'm sure Matt Lafleur is sitting there going, man, I don't know anything about this. That's that's every endeavor, and it's part of what makes it annoying when you go on social media and everybody's an expert. The more sure everybody is of how brilliant they are, more than likely, the less that they know. And it just makes it really hard to listen to a lot of the, the ESPN stuff, even with, again, NFL football players. It's why I don't put a lot of stock in a lot of it. They were really good at, you know, running and catching and all that stuff. But being able to rationalize things, I just, I, I'm, I'm just not seeing it. A lot of the stuff that I'm hearing is dumb. Yes, you know how to run an off, you know, you, you know how to read a playbook better than I do. That's great. But then something basic comes up, like should we pay running backs, which is a really simple mathematical problem. And you're just way off. Just freaking way off. But I have to concede it because a wide receiver says, oh, we wouldn't be, you know, Devontae says, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere with this without this guy. We can't win without this guy, which is hilarious because you didn't win. You didn't win anything. You sucked. But again, don't, don't let anybody tell you that you have to concede a point because somebody says so. No, you don't. Don't believe anything until you're personally convinced. And if that person you're talking to can't convince you, and if the NFL expert can't convince you, it doesn't mean you're right. But don't concede just because somebody says so. Because you know what? People are stupid and they don't know anything. People also are biased. People lie. They have ulterior motives and motivations to, to, to say certain things. To concede what you believe because a fallible person who doesn't know everything and is very adept at lying to, to give the appearance of, of looking a certain way tells you that that's what you need to believe, don't do it. Go get the answer yourself. And anyone playing that card can shove it. Nothing drives me crazier than, oh, so-and-so said so. I get that 50 times a day from Bears fans. Oh, look, here's a former player who says Justin Fields good. Now what are you going to do? Well, there's not much I can do other than to tell you I don't give a crap. Because you know what? That's the right answer. Anyways, I'm out of here. You guys have a good day. I'll talk to you tonight, tomorrow, whatever. Have a good one. Bye-bye. <laughs>